regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Torwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Well, it's election day. Yay. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> I'm, I'm still not seeing Cthulhu for president anywhere. I know, I, it wasn't yeah. on my ballot sheet. What's going on? Well, there's perhaps the fact that we don't have a president. Well, why vote for the lesser evil? I want a republic, damn it! Especially if he's got a great big tentic- tentacular great old one at the top, yes. <laughs> So what are our predictions? Because we can make predictions now, and I can just edit the right one in. <laughs> I, my, my prediction is that the government will get in. We'll, we'll get a Muppet in either case. Of course, the other thing that's been going on is you've been making videos, Paul. Aha, yes. Yes, <laughs> I've been trying to make a video that explains how to run the quick start rules of Call of Cthulhu. I'm really glad you said that and not someone who said just you've been making videos. I got really worried then for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> are those are subscription only, Matt. Yeah. <sighs> Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. But there, there's certain content you cannot upload to YouTube. Pass me the D20 sound loss now, please. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, that's definitely going to be flashing red. <laughs> First one covers creating a character. Uh, it's three minutes long, and it starts off like this. How to create a character using the new 7th edition quick start rules. Print out a copy of the character sheet, both front and back. Start off by picking an occupation. Now we're going to share these numbers out amongst the characteristics right here. Now that you've given each characteristic a value, you're going to write in the half and fifth values. If you want to see the video in full, you can find it on blasphemoustomes.com. Also on the website recently, we've had a poll for people to tell us what they want from our podcast, how long they want it to be, and to tell us what kind of content they want. Well, you can only pick from a limited selection. But I mean, if you've got other requests, you can uh, you can send us an email. But we can't promise that we can uh, return well, all your entries. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we can't necessarily offer more than mockery, but <laughs> yeah. And it's that time again for our Lovecraftian word of the week. <laughs> you see, I'm interested to see what how you spell week in your show notes because I swear <laughs> you've got an A in it with the tone that you give it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll stop. Complaining as soon as the podcast goes weekly again, which it won't do, so I'll never stop complaining. But we are recording it in a week. It's always a week. It just happens that there's a gap in, there's a week in between the weeks where we provide this. As good as this microphone <laughs> is, it cannot take in the glare that I'm giving you at the moment. <laughs> but no, our Lovecraftian word of the week is detestable. I hadn't really considered detestable a particularly Lovecraftian word, but he uses it quite a bit. He does use it fairly regularly, particularly in his earlier stories. And it's certainly one that, personally, I do associate with Lovecraft. It's not a word I've seen too many people use in quite the way that he does. I mean, it's interesting for me that the number of things that Lovecraft describes as detestable or hated or hateful, they're very strong words. And they're words that inspire a kind of uh, revulsion, which seems to be, you know, in my mind, something that Lovecraft probably felt about quite a lot of things. 
And so it's it's a word that I associate very strongly with Lovecraft. I notice we don't have a quote from Horror at Red Hook here, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you would have used the word in there somewhere. I, I didn't think to go and check that, but yes. Yeah, that, that might have been unfortunate. Yeah. And of course, detestable by the book means stimulating, disgust or detestation, offensive, shocking. From Dagon. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. And from the Arthlodep. And through this revolting graveyard of the universe, the muffled, maddening beating of drums and thin, monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time, the detestable pounding and piping whereunto dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic, tenebrous, ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is Neartholotep. And finally, from the Hound, it was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course, which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity, that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. So, gentlemen, if you were to try to use the word detestable in a sentence, how would you do so? Scott detests Sean Connery accents. That's not That's detestable. That's detests. Mm, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I fail. <laughs> Next. Let's just rephrase but, the sentence. Yeah. That, 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 Scott, was a, um, that, that was a detestable attempt, Matt. <laughs> Singularly Scott. detestable. <laughs> Scott finds Sean Connery accents detestable. Just bad ones. Just your one. They're all bad. <laughs> Even his is bad. <laughs> Much as I like Admiral Akbar, I must say I find Nigel Farage detestable. <laughs> oh. What, because it's a trap? <laughs> Careful, we'll end up with the Kent police turning up on our doorstep. <laughs> what? Farage uh, called the Kent police and, and reported, uh, have I got news for you to them? Oh, yes. Uh, for, for making jokes about him. Yes, yes. How excited are you about the new Star Wars trailer, Scott? Very. <laughs> <laughs> the look on your face was priceless. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Scott showed as much enthusiasm for that as I did for Napoleon Dynamite. Um, no, I'm... I'm kind of ambivalent. Um, I like Star Wars, but I won't go out of my way to watch it at the cinema. Won't you? Probably not. No, I get to, I get to go to the cinema. Maybe you can count on one hand how many times I go on average in that many years. Wow. I don't have the time. I'll be there. <laughs> I'll buy your ticket, Scott. Thank you. You're too kind. Really. <laughs> I Max. <laughs> I Max at Bletchley. Uh, so, I mean, I have seen a number of the Star Wars films at the cinema. This is where we want a pic. If we could do a picture blast <laughs> of Malcolm McDowell sat listening to Beethoven. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> <Did he> well. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to talk about doing research. To help us in discussing this topic, we'll be joined later in the episode by Brett Kramer, editor of the Arkham Gazette and contributor to the Masks of Neolithotep Companion. 
We're going to talk quite a lot about research in general, and we'll make references to the process of writing scenarios. But obviously, you know, this doesn't just apply to writing stuff for publication. You know, almost every GM out there will write his or her own scenarios and present them to the players. But almost all of us who run games, you know, end up having to do some form of research. So none of this is particularly peculiar uh, to writing. Yeah, I mean, if you were writing D&D scenarios for your group, then research isn't really a problem because you can just make stuff up. But if you're doing Call of Cthulhu, then it's kind of inherent that there's going to be some facts in there that you might want to research. Well, even, even D&D you might do because you might want to, for example, look at old temples and stuff like that for inspiration for, you know, uh, But nobody's going to say you've got that wrong. True. Unless you're playing in a very detailed, rich setting, like I was actually talking before we went on air about Forgotten Realms. Thinking incredibly detailed. Oh, okay, setting. yeah. If, if you've got a published setting, then mm -hmm. you're kind of doing research on the published material, for yes. the setting material. Which again is it? Is it? Is it? Yeah, yeah. Granted, yeah, yeah. But then it's fairly easy to do because you just buy the books and read them. I guess some but of them are fairly densely, they are. densely <laughs> packed with material. Yeah, the difficult part isn't reading them. The difficult part is remembering them. Yes. The first question we'll try to tackle is, why should you do some research? What's the point in doing research? Why would somebody want to sit down and do loads of research for a scenario? It's just a story with characters. What's the point? Well, I think one, two is probably an overstatement. Yeah. Some of us are just research masochists. Yeah, some people like doing it, so I've heard. Yeah, freaks. <laughs> Academics and, you know, so on. I'm a freak. Why are you looking at me like that? A library use is a core skill. <laughs> <laughs> I roll it a lot, really. Yeah. But yeah, there are all sorts of reasons why you might want to research a scenario. I mean, for me, the big reason that I do a lot of research, the main one, I suppose, is to try to make what I write convincing. I mean, not just convincing to, you know, myself or you know, other people I might run it for at games and so on. Particularly, for example, when I'm doing World War Cthulhu stuff, I'm conscious of the fact that a lot of the people I'm writing for actually know a hell of a lot more about military history than I ever will. So there's part of me that's always very self-conscious and thinking that, you know, I don't want to put stuff in that will completely break people's suspension of disbelief if they know about the topic will take them out of the game, and so on. So, you know, I, I do that research to try to make the game world feel as convincing as possible and, and try not to throw any complete mistakes in there. And how much research do you think you need to do to do that? I kind of feel that a little bit goes quite a long way. When I did a World War Cthulhu scenario and I did a bit of research, I was able to sort of mention the plastic explosive was called 808 explosive belts, these collars that went that they could fit around things. And there were one or two other little details that were just enough to kind of make it feel like, well, he's done a little bit of research. This sounds kind of convincing. It's, I think it depends how much detail you're getting into with things. It depends what the actual nature of the thing you're writing is as well. Like for a scenario, then yes, you're right, little bits of, of detail go a long way there. But for another project I worked on recently, for example, uh, the SOE Handbook, that oh, yeah, is... Yeah, now you're into yeah. a different area there. Yes, I mean, that, that, that is you know, almost entirely you know, extrapolation from factual information. So that's a completely different requirement. But yeah. right, for a scenario, you know, a light dusting of detail you know, is generally enough. 
this is where I put my put on my freak hat. Um, I go so even for scenarios. I go in for a lot of detail because there are so many different ways that a keeper is going to attack a scenario, and how they and what level of detail they will want to present to pe- um, to people. That it presents them with almost a smorgasbord of all different details and facts that hopefully will cover every or as many requirements as are reasonably feasible that a player might ask, and that then they will have the answers at hand. Um, if anything, it caters more towards being a safety net for GMs um, or keepers to say that yeah, a keeper, um, a player asks you a question. If you're maybe uh, you're not as experienced as a keeper as some others might be, that you've got the answer to hand rather than just making shit up on the fly. Yeah, I mean, the counter-argument to that is that if you're presenting the keeper with a lot of information like that, that's something they either have to internalise, which is quite a lot of work, and you know, for some of us who are getting on a bit, our memories aren't actually that good. Or alternatively, it's something where they're going to have to stop the flow of the game and look it up. The counterpoint I'd I'd make is that um, in a lot of cases like this, you can probably get away with making stuff up uh, to fill in just little details like that. If everyone around at the table buys it for the sake of verisimilitude, it doesn't necessarily matter that it's historically slightly wrong. I guess one of the things that I do is I tend by default to set my scenarios in places which don't require research particularly so i use generic small american towns in the 20s or remote village somewhere or something like that somewhere that's not you know it's not the empire state building it's not you know it's not the british museum if you do those places you know there's a lot of facts about those places that you need to kind of get right to make it seem real whereas if they're kind of more generic places where you can host your story then it doesn't require the same degree of research. But at the same time, you know, knowing the historical period, you know, particularly for 1920s settings, knowing stuff about what technology was around, you know, particularly, say, in small-town America, trying to work out, you know, whether, whether it's likely that someone would have a telephone, for example, or, you know, whether, you know how common, um, you know, cars and trucks were and stuff like that, yeah, it is is actually it's a degree of important. research, and it is important, but it's not down to the kind of detail um, and specificity that you know a particular location in a particular time yes. requires. So it's the kind of thing that you can get from a 1920s source book. You know how common were telephones, how common were uh, cars, and, and what models of cars were around. It isn't it, it, that kind of level of research isn't that difficult. Trying to find out what Buckingham Palace was like in 1925, that is quite difficult. Yes. Yeah, those, those specific things can really trip you up sometimes. I, I had a, a similar thing with a, uh, a World War Cthulhu scenario I wrote, where I'd set the whole thing on board a hospital ship during the Second World War. Yeah. Yeah, I spent so long trying to find deck plans for a World War II hospital ship. I tried every source that I could think of, you know, went out to people uh, who you know, know a lot more about this stuff than I do, and no one could find the bloody things. In the end, you know, if, I don't know whether I should admit, admit this, but we just ended up making them up. The grounds for that were, you know, if we can't find this, who the hell else is going to? You didn't make the rest of the scenario up, did you, Scott? No, the rest of it is all based on historical fact. That's good. Especially the stuff with the monsters. Yeah, mm-hmm. excellent. <laughs> uh, I guess part of me also adheres to... Um, there's a quote from, uh, for those of you that are Doctor Who buffs, uh, from Trial of a Time Lord, 
uh, where the master says, a lie works best when shrouded in truth. It just, I don't know, it seems to have a lot more ring to it. And being a, being a perfectionist that I am, I just like things to be accurate, neat, tidy, and it's generally well, well-rounded and well-polished. Yes, but I, the, again, another counterpoint to that is that, and this is something that I found with myself, I, I obviously can't speak for the two of you here, but I found that sometimes I'll get interested in something that I'm researching or feel like I need more details on it and fall down the rabbit hole of research and spend so much time kind of reading up information that I never actually need to use for this that it ends up becoming quite a time sink. Well I think you're particularly prone to that problem Scott because you're doing the Second World War and there are you know millions of books about the Second World War down to the greatest detail and if you start researching any particular aspect you could you know you could go into such great depth about any one particular single thread of that and you're trying to cover a a broad swathe of it so you know you you could you could research that for years oh god yes yeah my my actually experience of falling down that pit hole was a project regarding the american revolutionary war oh boy there's a lot of material about the battle of lexington and concord (laughs) Now that brings up another interesting point, which is when you do that huge amount of research for a project, how much of it do you feel like you end up having to actually put in what you write? I feel that some books that I've read, some scenario books that I've read, have got that wear their research on their sleeve, really. There's a lot of research rich stuff about particular vehicles and engine sizes and, you know, all these details that never really or or at least i'd never bring into play but when i'm reading it uh and i'm thinking of uh when i read and ran walker in the wastes that it was clear they'd done a lot of research but i didn't feel i was putting all of that into the game now it kind of made me feel that the the whole thing had been well researched and was well written and whether this is a criticism or not i'm not quite sure but i didn't feel that all of that translated from the book into the game so why was it there i don't I, know well, i guess it's the question of whether yeah how much this is going to make the game fun for the players to go back to your point earlier matt then yes you know being able to answer little questions like that like you know what kind of tracked vehicle is that parked over there you know may or may not help with you know someone's immersion or make them feel like you know this is really happening around them at the same time yeah presenting loads and loads of information like that which is never going to find its way into play seems a bit masturbatory to me it's a bit like novels some novelists go into a lot of crunchy detail about, you know, types of vehicles and, you know, particularly kind of uh, espionage novels and so on, go into a lot of kind of crunchy details about the setting and the and the devices and so on. And I guess that appeals to their readers. So I guess different le- levels of detail yeah. appeal to different people. Yeah, I mean, it, it, exactly. I, I tend it's, to it's just gloss test. over things and, and just kind of you know focus more on what i see as as the story and the characters and what's kind of happening and just touch on the 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 setting and the descriptions and so on yeah i i think there are a couple of traps that yeah certainly that i've had to fight against as a writer uh doing stuff like this which yeah one is that yeah you've done all this research you've learned all this stuff you've made all these notes it's tempting to put a lot of that stuff into what you write anyway because you know you've done all that work you want it to mean something uh the other is (laughs) if you're getting paid by the word it's an easy way of padding out your word count 
Well, what are you saying, Scott? <laughs> that's some that's some fire assault, Gordon. <laughs> Research maps. Why are you worried. looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't saying that at all. <laughs> There's something I'll touch on a bit later as well, but I think another important type of research is just the, the general reading you do around the subjects you're interested in or you know, even just random stuff, uh, looking for potential inspiration. I mean, I, I read a lot of random shit, just always looking for you know germs of ideas that might not occur to me otherwise. And that is a form of research. I mean, it's not setting out to try to find specific details for a project I'm working on, but as a constant ongoing process of just reading random bits of journalism and non-fiction books and stuff like that, to try to, you know, plant ideas my head seeds that all germinate later yeah, it sounds more like looking for inspiration than rather than research almost i mean i guess the two kind of overlap but yeah research to me seems more like okay i'm, I'm saying it in the bodleian library in 1923 i need to go and research that and find out what it was like yes but i mean there, there is some overlap and it's not just on the inspiration front but then, then sort of gives you all sorts of ideas that you might then be able to draw upon later i think that's the best thing about research is not that you go and do it and you know uh, what kind of cups they had and you know um, you know what the room looked like and what kind of wallpaper they had. It's when you find something interesting and it's like you've thrown the ball against the wall and it bounces back at you stronger and you come up with something new that you didn't know was going to be in the scenario and it inspires you to think, wow, oh, hold on, I didn't know about you know this thing happening at this time this really fits into the scenario and brings something new in that I hadn't even considered. That's, that's, that's the point of research. That's the, where research pays off, I think. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's actually one of the best places I've found that's a community for that is on the Delta Green mailing list mm. um, because there are various people that post real-world news articles up there that are either inspiring or just plain weird shit. I was actually reading one of those um, news articles that someone posted that... Uh, got me writing a scenario that then got um, ultimately got me published. The sort of approach that I'm talking about was very nicely summed up in an interview I'd read recently with Alan Moore. And he wasn't actually talking about writing in this case, he was actually talking about magic. Uh, but the, uh, the description that he gave I thought was absolutely perfect to the process of sort of reading around subjects and getting inspiration uh, for, for writers in general. And uh, he said, uh, Fill your head with any old shit you come across, and then rely upon developing a sense of discrimination, so that eventually you'll be able to sort out the stuff that is rubbish, which is a lot of it, from the stuff that sort of makes some kind of sense to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think those are words to live by. Yeah, there's certainly plenty of old shit in my head. Says the Alan Moore lookalike. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, we just need a mirror, really. For <laughs> you didn't need to live your life quite so closely to it, though, Scott, did you? Surely. I wonder if there's an avatar of the Moor <laughs> that you are following. I wrote a scenario set in the Wild West and out in California direction. So I looked up uh, some maps and so on to, to use as handouts. And I set the map down on the table at Battlemasters many years ago. And one of the players picked up on something which, if I'd done some research, I would have known about. But at this time, I didn't even know about this. It was Steve Dempsey. Hello, Steve. I think you might be listening. And he said, oh, look, the Donner Pass. 
at the point there, I didn't know that it was just happened to be that that part of the map that I'd chosen. And I didn't know what the Donner Party was. I didn't know it was this, you know, now kind of mythical party that went through the, the hills and in the winter and ended up, you each, know, each eating each, each other and their shoes and so on. I think they ate their shoes first, maybe. But anyway, I, I'd, I'd go straight for the people. You know, if I'd have done a little more research, that could have paid off quite nicely. But I, I always kind of thought that was uh, fortuitous. I had a similar incident to that with James Mullen. I'd done a tr- um, pulled a trick that I'd done um, previously with a scenario for Trail of Cthulhu, where I just looked for an island out in the middle of nowhere. Um, I went on to Wikipedia originally for um, what became known as Cerulean Halo to find a uninhabited island, Adventure Joe's Clipperton Island, and I did the same thing for a Fear Itself adventure and just went, oh, I want to do something up in the coast, up, up in Scotland. There we go. There's this. Oh, there's these few islands called the Seven Sisters out in um, the Outer Hebrides. Oh, there's one that's got a lighthouse on it. That works perfectly for me. And I just set the um, set the scenario there. Said that a house had been built on it, and of course mentioned the name of the island. And James goes, "Well, you mean that Eileen Moore?" I'm like, "Well, there's another one." <laughs> and, <laughs> and was got a rabbit in headlights, going, "What? What's so significant about this place?" And happens greatest unsolved mystery of the 20th century then um, in Scottish history there. Yeah, oh well, that was fortuitous. <laughs> and it added a hell of a lot to the scenario, especially when I found out about it. Oh yeah, this this actually really does complement this really well. <laughs> Did, didn't you have a similar experience, Paul, some time back, where you'd set a scenario in an island somewhere near Malaysia that you picked oh. as being completely remote, and the first person or the first group you ran it for, someone had just come back from that island? Yeah, it was international students at, in London, and uh, yeah, I, I put it down and sort of said, "Oh, this is a remote island. Take you a few hours to fly there." And the guy said, oh, no, it only takes about half an hour. I think he lived there. It's like, <laughs> great, yeah. Sod's law. <laughs> so I think this is a really interesting thing about research. First off, it creates a sense of verisimilitude. It creates a sense of, you know, immersion and, you know, buying into being there in the scenario. But second off, for the person running the game or writing the game, it just spawns ideas. Yeah, and it also gives you, I suppose, a sense of confidence as well. Um, that, yeah, for example, if I feel like I've researched a particular location reasonably, then it feels that much more real to me and I feel slightly more confident in portraying it. Okay, so we've established that research is a good thing. How do you go about doing it? Differently in every instance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Next topic. (laughs) Do you want to expand on that, Matt? Do you mean different pages on Wikipedia? Is that what you mean? Shh. Oh, down the secrets there. <laughs> no, actually, that's a good point, though. I mean, you know, we, we laugh about it. Wikipedia is such a fucking useful resource. Oh, it is. Yes, fantastic. I, I mean, not only is it good for that kind of superficial research where you're trying to get a handle of, where you've got, perhaps got an idea for a location or a character or something like that that's based in, in history or in the real world. It's, it's a good place to go in and start learning about that. But also, it serves a, another purpose, which is if you go up down to the references, then it'll have references to other online resources, books, and so on. So that if you need to get into that in more detail, you know, it's a good uh, uh, jumping off place. Yeah, it's, it's a good spring. You took the words out of my mouth, really. It's a good spring, but it's a good springboard to yeah. move on to more detailed work. And um, particularly if you do find a very good 
um, article that has been well written and well sourced, you've just got a plethora of information to draw from. Again, like the clip is an example, I just put in a search for a list of uninhabited islands and then found a found an overhead shot of the island in question, then started looking up the links, found all the books I needed to on the place, um, used that as a, um, to go on YouTube, plenty of videos taken at the location. It all depends on, really, it's a good, it's a good compass. It gets you pointing in the right direction. I'd give another shout for YouTube. Wikipedia is great, but and YouTube is also great because there are so many documentaries about various topics. When I was looking at the SOE operations, uh, there's loads of documentaries about SOE operations around the world. And going onto YouTube, there they are, and you can just you know, sit and watch it and absorb it. It's, it's really useful. Yeah, not just YouTube, but Dailymotion as well and um, uh, Vimeo. You also touched upon another resource that's very useful there, uh, or at least hinted at it, which is Google Maps. Oh, yes, very much so. Um, particularly with Street View. Yes. Um, again, for one of the one of the scenarios I've, um, I've written is in uh, 19th century Paris, uh, trying to find a place that I thought was typical of the type of location that I wanted to use in the scenario, but also had to be fairly close to a real place, being able to look around the streets that, to be honest, haven't really changed that much in that uh, from since that time period was invaluable. To be able to go, that's the building I want, now I know where I need to set this, now I know what art notes to give to the, um, the artist so they can give a good um, facsimile of the location, invaluable. Yeah, similarly, I was writing something recently that was set in World War II era Stepney. And I was just putting in addresses for certain businesses and people's homes and so on. And it was really useful going to Google Street View and being able to take a look down a road and just see, yes, there are some old style residential buildings here. So this would be a suitable address for you know someone of this kind of economic class to be living in and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it, it just anchored it very much in the real world with very little effort. One of the mistakes I've made in research several times is to do start writing about a place or a house and describing it or a person and describing them, then go looking for the image or the uh, information about that place only to find it's different to what I've written. Um, so I would say if you are thinking of setting a scenario in a house, uh, find the house plan first then write your scenario based on that house plan. Yes. Like your hospital ship, Scott, find, a, you know, before you sort of get into it, find a, a, I mean, there wasn't a hospital ship, but, you know, so I don't oh, know. But No, um, no, but I did use, I, I knew that it was a converted cruise liner from the 1920s. Yeah. So I found deck plans of cruise liners from yeah, the 1920s. Yeah, so it's probably been one of so, those so, that's so, just been yeah. re, re, uh, reused anyway, I guess. Oh, yeah, exactly. But it was just a question of what the layouts and the cabins and the wards and so on was going to be. I knew what the layout of the ship was going to be, where the engines were, what the decks were called, stuff like that, what yeah, the different parts yeah. of the ship. So that was all absolutely real, but it was just the fact that you know, I didn't know how it had been converted for a hospital ship. Often when I create NPCs or, or player characters even, one of the last things I do is stick a picture on. Whereas I think it's now, actually, I've reversed that and I try and find the picture first and then do the PC to fit the picture, um, you know, with the description and the and the app and the, and the size and everything. If you try and get the picture first, then, you know, you don't have to go looking for some yes. picture to fit that exact person at the end because you've, you've designed it to fit that picture. 
And same with house plans, yeah. Yeah, I mean, house plans are really easy to find online. I mean, this is something I suppose it's slightly easier for modern day stuff, because particularly if you're looking at residential or commercial properties, a lot of estate agents now uh, put floor plans online for the properties they're selling. Yeah. And that is an absolute godsend. Oh, it's fantastic. A number of times I've nicked those as the basis for stuff. And when you look around, if you've been buying a house as I was last year, um, you get used to looking at houses and when you look in supplements and you see house plans that don't really look like real houses, you can see they've just been drawn by somebody as a sketch map, just kind of, you know, just boxes that kind of link together to make a house, but they don't really make a very convincing house. So yeah, just, just find a real house map and just work from that. And even if you're going back to older periods, I mean, there are a lot of older house plans online. Yeah. Well, you just search for the right period. Uh, there was a fantastic resource that uh, Keeper Dan of the Miskatonic University podcast found, uh, which he used as the basis for one of the rewards in the Indiegogo campaign that they ran last year, which was a book of um, house plans, or at least house designs, that were uh, used in the early 1900s in the US. It was a catalogue, basically. Um, you could buy these house plans if you were building your own and it just gave you the plans for building your own house. Marvellous, yeah. And, yeah. and it had something like a hundred different kind of classic American houses of the period. Yeah. And it was just fantastic. Obviously, you know, there are other places to find information other than online. Books, they're remarkable things. Books are very, very useful. I mean, you know, you're in the same position. Well, in fact, you're both in the same position as I, have, as I am of having very large libraries. I collect all sorts of, you know, quite often random non-fiction books. If I go to a charity shop or something like that, and I find cheap books on a subject that I don't know very much about that seems vaguely interesting, I'll quite often pick it up and, and just use that for inspiration later on. And, you know, certainly I've found, you know, as I've gone into diverse projects, that just being able to go to my shelves and pick off just the right thing, you know, helps an awful lot. Two of the subjects for books when I've gone out hunting for reference material that I find very helpful and very inspirational for uh, for writing are collections on myths and legends from various part, different parts of the world and also places that report on ghost stories and hauntings. Um, they'll have interesting locations generally and also interesting backstories as to what potentially has happened there for um, for such sightings. Again, great little snippets of information that you can then turn into scenarios. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is you know secondhand books on eBay and uh, Amazon. Uh, in a lot of cases, you know, if you shop around, you can get very, very cheap secondhand books. Uh, particularly these days, I mean, the value of secondhand books seems to have dropped through the floor. Yes, yes, it has. Says the person who just ditched through two thirds of their library. <laughs> but <laughs> how but many it... paperbacks was that, Matt? About one thousand two hundred that we managed to fit in the back of my car last weekend. That's. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, that's got to be at least a Redwood's worth. Well, I put it this way, I lost all my fucking charges taking that lot down to the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> Made the Cardinal Bibliomancer sin, I sold books. But they were only cheap paperback mass market fiction, so it's not too bad. But if there's a subject you want to research um, and you can find some decent books on it, then, yeah, finding them online is generally very cheap and easy these days. But, of course, you know, that doesn't replace uh, a good visit down to the library. 
Um, I, I go to the Milton Keynes Library fairly regularly, and you know, it's, it's not a fantastic selection, but it's good enough that I've, I've certainly found a number of surprising books that are filled in details that are, you know, I, I just wasn't expecting to be able to fill in. I just try my best to create my own library at home. Um, there is the space constraint, admittedly, eventually, but it's nice to be able to then go back to um, certain books later, and you might then find something you miss on a on a previous reading. Um, well, well, I mean, certainly, what yeah, what I've done sometimes is where I found particularly useful library books, uh, particularly if they've been in the reference library and you haven't been able to take them out, is that I have found cheap copies of them myself and ended up buying them later. Yeah. I was reminded of reading Stephen King's book on writing uh, earlier this year. In it, he says... You're doing what you did with Haunter in the Dark. Where was that no, bloody no, no, I've underlined it. <laughs> Is it something about boys breaking windows? <laughs> not this time. Uh, he's talking about how much research to do. He says, not much, though. Research is backstory, and the key word in backstory is back. And he's, he insists that backstory should be kind of pushed into the background and not, you know, not brought into the, into the fore. So it's just, yeah. you know, a few things there in, in you know, the... the that sort of come through to sort of colour the, the situation. But the real story is about the people and what's going on and uh, the events taking place. Yeah, I read that, that book a couple of years ago, and I th if I remember correctly, he also makes a very, very good point, which is uh, about the stage in a project at which you should do your, your detailed research. And that he talks about, I think, the fact that he tends to write his first draft before he does his serious research. Or at least he'll, he'll, he'll write the bulk of it, and then he'll use the research to go back in and fill in the details, so that he doesn't get bogged down doing that before you know he loses the creative energy on the project. I see. I'm, I'm the reverse. I I sit down and do all my research to begin with, so I know the confines of my canvas. If anything, that is my first draft of being able to get the lay of the land, put the contours on the map, and have everything in black and white. Then me sitting down and writing my first draft is putting the colour into that into that map. Well, I guess, you know, a lot of that depends on how much you're just making shit up. I, you know, I, I tend to make stuff up a lot more than you do. <laughs> and, you know, in certainly, you know, in a lot of cases, I will use that King approach of, you know, largely writing it and then going back and, and doing the research that I need in order to fill in those bits of verisimilitude. And if we look at Stephen King, I mean, how many of his books are set in New England and about a writer? Yes. Many. Yes. <laughs> Funnily enough, I think he knows about that already. He also says, if I can quote a little more, what I'm looking for is nothing but a touch of verisimilitude. That sense of reality is important in any work of fiction, but I think it is particularly important in a story dealing with the abnormal or paranormal. Yeah, Lovecraft made the same point that you know, anchoring weird fiction in reality adds that additional degree of disquiet. That if it's all weird, if it's all disconnected from reality, it doesn't have the same impact. It doesn't have that that sense of what you know uh, Robert Aikman referred to as an intrusion. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the, the impression of something that should not be there upon our world. It makes it more of a poignant counterpoint. Yeah, I kind of buy into this being this could be my life that this this uh, my player character is living, and then weird stuff happens and it's more effective. And this last point that he makes, which I think will ring true with anybody who's uh, writing scenarios and, and planning games. Also, enough details, always assuming they are the correct ones, can stem the tide of letters from picky-ass readers who apparently live to tell the writers that they messed up 
The tone of these letters is unvaryingly gleeful. <laughs> yeah, because there's a ton of those in gaming replace, as well. <laughs> replace letters with forum posts, and I think we're on the mark. Oh, God, yes. We've seen arguments there for doing the research up front or doing it you know, after the event to fill in the details. One thing that I've discovered the hard way is the worst possible fucking time to do your research is while you're actually writing stuff. Oh, God, yes. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I've made this mistake once and it's held me up on a project for uh, an embarrassing amount of time in that I didn't think to sit down and do all the research that I needed ahead of time and fill in those details. But in a lot of cases, it was stuff that I did need to fill in as I was writing it. So that I was writing, you know, one or two sentences and then having to go off and spend 10 minutes researching, coming back and writing another couple of sentences. That takes four fucking ever. But you could fall back on James Joyce's line of, yes, but what a couple of sentences. <laughs> <laughs> Another great source of information, and obviously this will depend on who you know, uh, is talking to people who know more about the subject than you do. If, you, if you've got friends who have studied uh, what you're doing academically or aspects of it, or at least you know, read a lot about the subject... Or live there. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah but exactly. If you're setting it in a, another country, speaking to someone who actually lives there and getting them to, you know, sort of sniff test what you're writing so that, you know, you, you don't have any glaring cultural inaccuracies. Mm. I'm thinking about some of the historical stuff that I've written. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to, you know, know people like Malcolm Craig. And, you know, a number of times I've, I've phoned him up or sent him an email and just asked him for a bit of information. And he's been an absolute godsend on that front. No, I've when that when that's happened, I've been again very glad to have a nice pool of people with a very wide, diverse set of interests, and I always make a point of giving them a special thanks in a um, in a manuscript and saying, "Gonna say thanks very much, like for Matt Knott for helping with uh, military equipment, and Elena Gulia for knowing about uh, Greek culture and so forth." Helps that she's Greek. Yes, yeah. um, being able to put their references and say thank you, honestly, this this really helped <laughs> in being able to put so much color into a scenario. And even if you don't have, you know, friends directly who can, you know, who, who can cover all the special interests that you need, uh, the communities on, you know, places like yogsothoth.com or a lot of the communities on, you know, Google Plus or even Facebook are full of people who will, you know, know more about these things than you do. So you know, don't be afraid to ask a question if you need stuff filled in. I mean, if nothing else, people are generally quite happy to point you in the direction of books to read. And of course, the other thing I find very, very inspirational, it's less direct research and it's more, you know, if I'm trying to write a scenario that feels like a particular work of fiction or a particular genre or whatever, is, you know, for, for some time immersing yourself in that genre. So, for example, you know, I'm, I'm writing, you know, so, or working on some espionage stuff at the moment. So, you know, as well as researching real-world espionage and stuff like that, you know, rereading John le Carre and, you know, watching The Sandbaggers and stuff like that is just, you know, fantastically inspirational. Yeah, I think if you're writing a scenario for your group, uh, and uh, like I wrote a scenario recently about the Bow Street Runners in London, and I watched the uh, series that you recommended, Scott, City of Vice, essentially that could kind of give you all you need to know to write a scenario for your group to, to play. Mm. Yeah, similarly then, doing one set in El Salvador, uh, watching the Oliver Stone film Salvador. Again, wonderfully great for evoking atmosphere. Yeah. Even if it does make you sick to your stomach in places. Sure does. 
But but yes, I mean, if you're just running something for your group at home, a combination of doing something like that and then, you know, 10 minutes on Wikipedia, that can give you the grounding for most of what you need. And you probably know in your group if anybody is a history buff about a particular time or era or whatever. Um, in, in which case, I mean, you know, one thing again I've done at the gaming table sometimes is I, you know, I've, I've turned around to people I've known, uh, yeah, I know know more about the subject than I do, and sort of yeah. say, yeah, uh, right, can you just fill in this detail here? And they'll quite happily chip in. For yeah, <laughs> at Concrete Cow the other week, um, the, the, there were some shots fired and there were some shells, they um, bullet casings that they found on the ground in the snow, and this was in Norway. And one of the char- one of the players said, "Well, you know, what are the bullet casings? Are they are they you know from from our guns? Are they or are they from the enemies?" And I'm like, "Uh, I don't really know how you'd know that." And then I remembered that Glenn was sat there in the, in the game, who is in the military. So I asked him, and he said, "Oh yeah, they'd be stamped." I can't remember what he said, but they'd be stamped with these letters on the end of the the shell casing if it was one thing, and there'd be another if it was another. And he just knew those facts. So, you know, I just deferred to him and let him tell us. So, you know, that's good. Yeah. Make use of your players. Oh, God, yes. And then claim all the credit. I'm not sure what anyone would ask me about. Potting? Yes. If you wanted to know (laughs) about something about clay. So, like the (laughs) tablet. Because that comes up so much. What about you, Matt? Uh, if you wanted any detail about the finan- uh, financial sector, automotive that, industry. About insuring dustbin lorries. Oh, yeah, especially them. Yeah, um, that yeah, crops you, up quite a lot in scenarios. And and some of the apps uh, that I write as well. Um, or desktop publishing, some little oh, yeah, bits yeah. of marketing. Yeah, and literature. You know quite a bit about literature. No, that's my, my degrees in literature and journalism. So, yeah. And uh, journalism as well, something. Yeah. Scott? Fuck knows. <laughs> the Dark Arts of the Warlock? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know quite a lot about that, right? Um... <laughs> oh, God. So if you get Scott in your game and, and you're stuck for any of that rubbish, then, you know, he's your man. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or, or anything to do with Alan Moore. He'll even sign you, even give you an autograph. Yeah. yeah, you should get when you go to Gen Con. You should still cosplay as Alan Moore. I, I'll take that under advisement. <laughs> I, hang on, how would I do that? You don't you need just to do, do it. You take, take, take your glasses off. <laughs> just speak a little bit deeper as well. No? Yes. Put on Northampton accent. <laughs> just go around and say, "No, you can't make a film in my book." <laughs> And of course, research isn't just for keepers. We've talked a lot about research for writers and for GMs, but it's not just GMs who really need to do research. Or, yeah, or, no, I'll rephrase that. It's not just GMs who can benefit from research. I, I think, yeah, anyone who's playing an RPG can probably get something from doing a little research of their own. Yeah, not necessarily to the same degree, but. Yeah, I mean, quite a lot of the games have players' guides and so on, uh, and reading those can enrich your game, I think. Yeah, I mean, the new Investigator Handbook for 7th Ed, yeah, we're 
not on commission here, um, <laughs> uh, has got a lot of useful stuff about the 1920s in there. So, for example, if you're playing, you know, no, this isn't you know just for GMs again because obviously this is the player handbook. If you're playing in a game and you don't necessarily know the 1920s that well, this is a good quick crash course. I know when I went to a convention in the mid 90s in Northampton, and I hadn't, I think that was the first games convention that I'd been to, you know, since the 80s. And it was certainly the first one that I'd been to where I was going to play Call of Cthulhu. And I kind of sat down and I didn't really know much about playing in the 1920s at that point, because most of the games I'd run before that were ones that I'd written that were set in the modern day. I didn't know anybody at the convention and sitting down to play in 1920s games was a little intimidating because... it was about Oscar Wilde and, and plays in London in the, you know, I guess it was Gaslight. Uh, and yeah, I was immediately out of my depth and I kind of wished I knew more about that. Yeah, I remember this was hugely intimidating to me the first time I ran Call of Cthulhu back in the early 80s. Because, yeah, I picked up this book, I wanted to run the 1920s scenarios in there, and I realised that, yeah, I mean, th- there was some good information in that initial box set, that, that little, you know, booklet on the 1920s, that, that gave a lot of good grounding. But I realised fundamentally I knew nothing about the period. What I suppose comforted me was the fact that neither did the players. So if I got stuff wrong, no one was going to pick me up on it. As a player, um, you know, I've found more recently that doing a bit of research of my own into, you know, say the characters that I'm going to play, if I'm going to play someone of a particular nationality or from a particular location, uh, someone of a particular profession or something like that, knowing something about the details of their life uh, can, can really enrich the experience. But if you're going to be playing a lot of Call of Cthulhu, it's probably worth reading up a little bit about the 1920s in general. Uh, maybe, you know, reading material outside the Investigator Handbook, even fiction from the time, or... Uh, or Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, Boardwalk Empire is you know, a great bit of grounding. Yeah. And now time for a conversation with Brett Kramer. We're joined today by Brett Kramer editor and author of The Masks of Nalathotep Companion and The Arkham Gazette. Welcome, Brett. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. We're keen to talk to you about your methods of research. <laughs> yes, I mean, The Masks of Nalathotep Companion is a meaty, meaty book. I mean, that's a big book. Uh, and, that's... yeah, absolutely packed with real-world information. So... Uh, yeah, can you tell us a bit about how you you went about researching that? How you structured the amount of research that might have gone into that? Well, I mean, it, it was sort of it ran in parallel to the research I wish I could have done when I ran Masks. I didn't actually own my own copy of of the campaign, so I had a photocopy of a friend's. And in the in the margins, I made sort of question annotations like, "What is this? What you know? What what hotels are there in Cairo?" Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when players would ask something, I would jot it down and sometimes try to look it up. But this was running in the mid-90s, when sort of the dawn of the Internet, when a good more than a decade later, I was you know, starting to think about the Companion as a project. I jotted down a list of the questions. I looked through those questions and sort of went from there. Um, but fortunately, there was a lot more available. Um, the Internet was certainly my primary, but not exclusive resource um, a lot of the time because it's – sometimes difficult to verify <laughs> um, hmm. things you'll find online. So I tended to focus on sites that digitized old books. Um, archive.org and Google Books were both very uh, critically useful. Um, for the New York chapter, I actually own 
I think a Rand McNally Guide to the City from 1927, which was my primary but not main source. Um, and then it was just as topics came up, I would research them. The uh, December 20 or January 25th, I think, eclipse in 1925. Um, there's a very there's a nice website about that, and there was information from say a NASA website about eclipses. It really depended topic by topic, and then. Um, some of our authors uh, for individual chapters, such as the London and uh, Shanghai chapters, Anthony Warren wrote both of those, and he has an extensive bibliography um, for both. Um, uh, Chad Bowser did the Cairo chapter, and he also um, did a lot of research. Um, and, you know, we, we, we tried not to reproduce something from like the, uh, the Cairo guidebook, which was basically a a reprint of the 1907 Baedeker's Guide, but with Cthulhu stats stuck in. <laughs> so we tried to, I mean, expand a bit more, but yeah, that was the, that was the basis, you know, internet research, focusing on scanned uh, period documents, and then uh, sometimes expanding out topic-wise, uh, at least for the, the historical elements. The fiction obviously required digging into the fiction, but that was a little harder to find online and a little more easily found to the library. So you've got a very uh, active interest in history and so on, Brett. Have you got any background in that? I don't know what uh, your yes. profession is and your academic I, I am a, a frustrated historian. I have an undergraduate and a master's degree in history. Um, I was working uh -huh. on a PhD and on it until I got burned out. I, I couldn't read any more about um, medieval shipping documents. So <laughs> I Was quit. that your specialism? My, my my research interests were the Genoese colonies on the Black Sea in the 13th and 14th centuries. Oh, wow. Um, so that was an interesting topic, but my Latin was terrible, which made original – and my Turkish was non-existent, so – and Arabic, of course, non-existent. So it made research a little more challenging. Um, <laughs> I but, can imagine. <laughs> yes. So no, it, the, the problem was the city I was interested in called Kaffa was on – the Crimean Peninsula, and had a population that was at least 11 different ethnic minorities speaking as, as many or more languages. Um, so it was a great polyglot commercial center, but it was somewhat challenging to research. <laughs> and also I just was really exhausted by my PhD program, so I bailed on that, but I refocused my energies on things a little closer to home. Have you, have you ever thought of going back to that research, or have you ever gone back to that research and used it for any uh, Cthulhu projects? I've not used it for – I've not done any Cthulhu Dark Ages work, although I did um, – when they – I think I read through some of the revamp of the second edition of Cthulhu Dark Ages. So, I mean, the skills certainly are ap applicable, but I, it's hard to – I think when you do a historical setting in a scenario, you need to export or to give the players enough information so they can make it useful to be in that setting. And I think there's too much buy-in for, uh, you know, 14th century Genoese merchant men. <laughs> Yes, going to yeah. a you know a predominantly Russo-Turkish city with large you know minorities of Tatars and oh God everyone else Greeks and Circassians and oh, various steppes tribes and <laughs> but that does lead to an interesting point. I mean, this is something we were uh, discussing a bit ourselves, which is yeah, when when you've got uh, a fairly rich or well, detailed setting like that. I mean, how much if you're trying to convey that to someone, how much of the research you do, how much of the information you have, do you actually put forward to you know a keeper or players who might be trying to use that in the game? I think I think the key is to put forward enough information to make to to demonstrate why the the, the setting is important to the story um, because I mean if, if you could set a scenario you know in the default 20s era or the modern day then 
there's there, I, there's no reason not to do that since the players will know the setting better. If you're gonna, you know, the reason for my my the monograph I wrote, Machine Tractor Station, um, is set on a machine tractor station because the setting is integral to the story. You know, it's you know the conflict of you know you know sort of secrecy and various factions within the the you know Soviet government. Those were those were used within the scenario. It would be a different scenario if it was set, you know, on a colonial farm or you know a Mars colony or something. So I, I think you need to. Presented as much information to make it seem like an interesting place for the scenario and sort of make it why the scenario sort of has to be there rather than somewhere else that's more immediately accessible. Because the time you're spending, you know, sort of instructing or showing the world is time, especially if it's a con, um, is time that's lost to everything else that people are there to game for. So I've got to jump in here and say Matt and I played that uh, scenario, uh, Machine Tractor Station, at the <laughs> Role Playing Games Club. What was it, Matt? A year or two back? Must be a couple of years, I know. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. That's good. Yes, I, I, I always enjoy hearing times when people don't all die. <laughs> <laughs> ah, uh, a good, a good few of us made it out of there. I think that's good. So. It tends to be, I mean, the, usually in that scenario, it's other players killing other players rather than the monster getting you. But I'm pretty sure there was some of that. <laughs> yes. That sounds like my kind of game. Oh, in, th- that, in that scenario, the NPCs are specifically built to uh, go at each other. Pretty, <laughs> the PCs are built to come into immediate and usually bloody conflict. So, mm. oh, superb. So, Brett, with your yes. background in um, academic research in history and so on, are there? I mean, is it just basically the same thing the rest of us would do? Just a lot of graft and hard work you know when it comes to the research or are there any tips or advice that you could offer us and the listeners to, well, you know, in in this respect sure i mean it's not the the, the the great thing is there are a lot of resources online and those are infinitely easier to sort through than paper and you know hard copy indexes that you mm-hmm. might have had to use even 10 years ago um you know when i was doing academic research i had to look through you know back issues of old periodicals trying to find an article I was looking for if I was lucky the issue where they indexed the past 30 issues and now you know with websites like archive.org or you know just even a good search engine if you have the right search terms that's a good start I would say the best place to start would be if you're looking for a period find a good general history and that will a good general history should have a, a good bibliography, and then you can dig into the bibliography. You don't have to read 30 books on the topic. You read read a, a general introduction, find out what the, the elements of the setting or the the, top, the place that appeal to you, and dig into those. Don't you don't need to learn every detail about a setting or a time. It's not it's not a history lesson. It's it's a storytelling event. You need enough. I've always found that you know I try to have enough information to make it a compelling place, but not so much that you know, every uh, it's not so much that I would get an A on a paper I turned in. Uh, you know, I mean, there are definitely historical anachronisms or errors, even you know, in the best research projects, since we don't live in the 1920s, let alone you know, colonial Williamsburg or you know, third century Rome or something. It's not you know, errors creep in so long as they don't take the players out of the game. That's all that matters. So, you know, the, the things to get right tend to be the things that players fixate on. If you're, if you're using Lovecraft Country, at least, you know, know the setting. If you're talking about weapons, expect one player to argue with you about what year a bullet 
type was introduced or something. But beyond that, you know, people are relatively forgiving so long as it doesn't take away from the the, the experience itself. You know, no biplanes in the Civil War. That's yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> but beyond that, no, I think it's you know, I, I would say find a topic you find interesting. That's the other key, really. If you don't think a setting is compelling, then your players probably won't, and you're not going to want to do the research if you think it's endlessly fascinating you know remember other people might not but at the same time at least you'll have the the impetus to do the digging and reading yourself with all the work that you put into the companion were were there any things that you uncovered that you found particularly interesting that 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 were new to you that you know that that, that particularly excited you well i mean uh, definitely i would say you know the first thing i learned i didn't actually find myself but someone pointed out on the the forums in yogsothoff.com um, was the fact that there was a total solar eclipse visible from new york city in january of 1925 yes which seemed to be you know the sort of ultimate scenes you know setting for the you know since this the campaign itself takes it eclipses are a central sort of event in the, the conclusion of the campaign why not bookend it with one at the beginning um, it's a very dramatic potential scene that really I thought was, I you know I can understand why Larry Dottilio didn't know about that in 1984 when he wrote it, but it, I it's, I think it's critical to include now. Um, just the political situation and some of the cities visited, the, you know, really understanding extraterritoriality in, in Cairo or um, Shanghai, you know, those those I found found were really informed the game and make it a richer play experience. Um, I mean, the most disturbing thing I discovered, of course, was that the spell check on my old uh, desktop was trying to correct Nyarlat Hotep to charlatan. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, until I that's saved oddly word, appropriate. I, I felt that that was a, a, a dark sign, but I kept going forward with the project. Um, the <laughs> other thing I discovered is occasionally people will submit to you plagiarized things, so it's always good to double-check. Um, I had at least one longer submission that turned out to have been cribbed entirely from an article from Pyramid Magazine, and fortunately, when I got in touch with the author of the Pyramid Magazine article, Hans Christian Vordish was more than happy to let us simply reprint the article that was cribbed instead of giving someone else credit for it. Oh gosh! Yes. So, I've once or twice come across things in in, in gaming that have have been lifted, you know, word for word from other things. It's usually just copy paste, sort of the Encyclopedia Britannica or wikipedia entries but it's it was disappointing to find but that was a, the only a really unpleasant discovery you've touched upon the sort of colonial aspects as well of the era in places like uh, cairo and uh, kenya i did, one thing that we found in our discussion with uh, Steve Ellis was that he, he made a special point of, of uh, saying that these things were uh, in, in the companion were presented um, in a very sort of grounded, um, I suppose, compassionate way. I mean, did you? Is this something that you you set out to do to sort of reflect the realities of the colonial world at the time? Well, I think I think that's something that can be both. Um, it's a double-edged sword for players. If they want to, you know, sort of enjoy the benefits of European colonialism, there are ways that it greatly facilitates them running around the world and going through a very pulp-flavored campaign. But at the same time, I, you know, in good conscience, I can't sort of, you know, paint everything with the same sort of pulp brush that, you know, it, it had. And also, it's it's just not. I, you know, xenophobia isn't really scary anymore, and it doesn't. It's not very much fun at this, you know, at the same time as well. It's just disappointing to see, 
you know, when when things are still sort of, you know, H. Ryder Haggard style of, you know, presenting, you know, the natives, when you have a much richer, if you have a, even, you know, attempt to understand how things were for the people in the places, you know, cults make more sense, or, you know, how information might be obtained by investigators. I think, you know, Chad Bowser included a whole discussion suggesting that the, the Brotherhood of the Black Pharaoh would have its own particular coffee shop it would use, because that was a cultural artifact of the period. And that's that's a great setting for you know investigators to unfortunately stumble into. That's a, you know, and it gives the cult a place to be. It simplifies research and investigation, and that just you know required you know basic research and having some understanding. And you know at the same time, you know Cairo, I, I you know just the idea or and, um, being in Shanghai sounds like a terrible experience for anyone mm-hmm. in 1925. I mean, you've got you know the Shanghaiese are you know legally aliens in their own country where but you've also got white russians who have no country of their own to call their home so they're in a very precarious legal position and you know i think knowing that stuff you don't have to use every element of of the research but knowing how things were knowing that you know why the sort of challenges it would take for a bunch of white investigators to go into harlem and scope out the juju house I think makes it a better a play experience overall. Mm-hmm. I, I, one thing I, I liked a lot was Matthew Pook um, when he Pookie, I think he prefers to be called. Yes. Um, his his NPCs were very much drawn from a, a global sort of experience, and so it's not just you know Professor Farnsworth, Professor Stevens, you know Professor X, <laughs> Professor <laughs> after Professor of investigators. You have people who are central to a location. So you know if you have to replace someone, which probably you will during the course of an investigation. You know, having a local isn't just a convenience for the, the the keeper. It's a convenience for the party because if you you know have a, a contact who knows Shanghai or knows um, Nairobi, then that's a benefit not just because it's easy to stick a new player. It's a benefit for the party because they're in a new place and you know there's a new world and it gives the new the player something specific to do. So I think it it, it strengthens the game. And in in your research, um, particularly for you know something that was already established like master and Alastep, you weren't necessarily picking places that excited you you were having to work with the existing places were there any places there that you know you, you researched and you just kind of hit a brick wall and that you couldn't find stuff out about and that you maybe had to i don't know maybe had to turn to fictional sources or, or anything like that to, to try and well, expand on I, you know, I, I would say the hardest. Re- I, fortunately, for the the city information, I was able to find a few very dedicated, very talented authors to work on those. Um, and then, you know, I think with, we had Shanghai taken care of by Anthony Warren, and then um, I think Hal Eccles and J.P. Chaplow each took a turn working on Cairo on Hong Kong, which is a section we decided to add because we I thought it was overlooked in the book. And then, and then I wrapped that up, and then. Um, Anthony Warren also did London, and then um, I think I only ended up having to do the New York part of the Nairobi setting, which has already been covered by David Conyers in Secrets of Kenya, and then um, Western Australia, which was probably the hardest for me, just because there was the least information on it. Mm. I mean, I, I contacted some you know Australian authors, which is why we've now expanded on that in the, the, the final version of it. Um, but I, you know, I ran what I did have by actual Australians since I was doing research from tens of thousands of miles away. Um, and I certainly didn't want to present the sort of, you know, Crocodile Dundee-esque um, 
setting. You know, I think I make a suggestion in the notes there that the first player to make a Steve Irwin or Crocodile Dundee joke should be the first player eaten by a flying polyp. So, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, you know, that was certainly the. I think Australia was the thinnest, both in research. It's, it's hard not to find information on London or and you know, to yeah, less I mean, extent, the, the New York or, listed London, New York, Cairo. They're all you know major landmark cities. So I guess yeah. you know you're always I mean, going to find information out about those. But you know, the outback of Australia or, or something like that is a lot. Sparser, yeah, if, I, I imagine. if I wanted to set a scenario on, you know, the Falkland Islands in the 20s, it would be a great challenge. If I want to do one set in Berlin in 1929, it's a much easier task so long as mm. either I know German or there's a good English book on the subject. So, yeah, so I mean, Shanghai is just, I, I you know, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating setting, you know, of any mm. era. So, yeah, I, I, I'll, I would say Australia was the one that got the, the poorest coverage, and that's why I think Adam reached out to, um, James Houghton, I think, is doing some additional Australian material for us to try to thicken that, to strengthen that up a bit. Um, the only other thing, in, in, when it came to research, though, I, I, one thing that was was cha- more challenging, honestly, in some ways, was trying to deal with the fictional elements. By, you know, I wanted to at least tip the hat to other mythos things, either from the game or from um, the fiction that might show up in cities. That was much harder to track down if there were. I mean, Cairo, yes, you can find mythos stories, but, you know, was there anything ever said in Kenya? Well, sort of, and, you know, I could, it, but it took a long time to sort of to narrow those down. Um, you know, the one thing I tried to include in all of the tome discussions, um, that was that was one thing I really wanted to make sure was that the, the, the big pile of tomes you could uncover in the campaign had some greater benefits to the players other than just being an expensive artifact that would take you out of the campaign for six months while you read the Book of Ivan. Um, and so I, I try to include in the descriptions of those tomes, you know, either backstories that might illuminate some secret of the campaign or, you know, at least tip the hat to other scenarios that are out there um, or other pieces of fiction. Um, you know, if, if you read through all of the tome descriptions, especially in some of the city, the city information as well, a, a very careful reader who's read a lot of other Call of Cthulhu scenarios will definitely see a few little um, Easter eggs that they may enjoy seeing pop up here and there. Right, right. Of course, then, Brett, the other thing you're known for is the Arkham Gazette, uh, which I, I'd guess, uh, and, and please you know, um, set me right here if I'm wrong, I'd guess requires a rather different kind of research in that, you know, sure, some of it is, is historical and some of it is based in the geography of New England. But in a lot of cases, what you're actually extracting uh, information from here is fictional sources, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you've got, fortunately, uh, the, the hard work was done with the Lovecraft Country book series uh, with Keith Herber um, and Kevin Ross writing those. And that, that, that that's the foundation that, I, I, you know, it's very, you know, the, the, the reason I like Lovecraft Country is it's a setting, especially for new keepers, that they can dive into without having to develop a lot of material on their own. Um, because you've got these, you know, very rich source books that are definitely rooted in the fiction. Um, and... You know, rereading the fiction obviously has been useful in finding either other ideas or other approaches. But you know that that, that basic work is done, and then trying to incorporate um, other elements of New England and, and North American folklore and culture and history. Um, you know, but luckily, luckily, the I've not come across a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I'll say that um, there's one or two minor issues of I think Keith used like uh, townships and count and. Uh, you know, some political breakdowns that didn't actually exist in New England in the 20s. But beyond that, you know, most of the research has been pretty spot on. So that's I've not had to 
had to fix anything really it's just a fun thing to it's you know the house is built i'm just decorating the windows <laughs> did, did you end up going to a lot of other uh, fictional sources though or um was it primarily the uh, the work that that um well, that had been put into the lovecraft county source books or lovecraft country well, source books well everyone makes that mistake don't feel bad about it. <laughs> i think even chaos on their website sometimes um I mean, most, I would say the books were rooted fundamentally in Lovecraft, and that's my primary, he's my primary reference. I've definitely read all of his work on, you know, all the Lovecraft country stories with a very close eye. Um, and then, you know, following that, Doggis Derleth um, was secondary, but I definitely, while some, you know, I, I'm not a Derlethian, I will admit, mm. um, but, you know, you can see where Keith sort of was more selective in what Derleth he included. Um, in the most in the upcoming issue for witchcraft, he completely omitted or Keith completely left out the witch, um, which which is hollow, which was uh, one of Durlis lesser stories. I, I decided to see if I could fix it to make it more compelling and make it fit within the setting. But you, I mean, if if you if you want to include every single you know Durlethian element, you know every back house hill between house between uh, Aylesbury and Arkham has got some sort of you know witch lurking in the attic or a sorcerer who summoned up something they shouldn't. There's, I think, a good dozen of those who show up, and it's all the sort of the same lonely house on the same improbable stretch of unpopulated road. So, um, you know, I've, I've definitely I, I will draw from other authors, but I'm still expanding my fiction reading. Honestly, there's a lot to cover, and not all of it good, and some of it some of it great, some of it not. So not to my tastes. Um, so you know, it's rooted in Lovecraft, and if I find something that works, I'll take it. I, apart from Lovecraft, which other authors have you found particularly inspirational? Oh, I mean, honestly, the stuff I found most inspirational is actually the real-world material, um, the sort of historical elements. Uh, trying to think, I mean, there's, I've definitely actually read Derleth finally, instead of politely ignoring him, <laughs> um, to, because he wrote so many stories set in set Arkham. I think most of the authors, the sort of early authors, avoided Arkham for the most part. I don't think. Clark Ashton Smith said anything there. I was actually reading through his work trying to find anything of, of note. You know, there are a few things. I'm trying to remember who else we've incorporated. Um, the only, actually, the, the one other thing for the the first Arkham issue, we we try we had a sort of an incorporation of some King and Yellow Robert Chambers, which obviously he's not using Arkham since that that predates him, but that certainly informed our first scenario. I'm trying to think of uh, someone. I think there was. Trying to think of who else for the Innsmouth issue. Oh, um, what's his name? Uh, Lynn Carter. I ended up reading a lot of Lynn Carter for the Innsmouth issue, um, which was, you know, I, if I'm politely ignoring Durleth, I'm smiling and nodding and slowly backing away from Lynn Carter most of the time. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, they're still, I, you know, in sort of building off of an article that Kevin Ross wrote for the early, like, issue, Unspeakable Oath issue two or three, where he sort of broke the the worst problems off of carter and, and incorporated the better elements um you know because you've got these sort of pastiche authors who throw in you know oh i also read the necronomicon wonderful let's go have tea together oh <laughs> um i mean yeah in the durla story which is hollow for example that you have a school teacher who encounters a mysterious young boy he then goes into arkham to ask after the strange place and is immediately referred to a professor at miskatonic university who teaches him how to like cast the elder sign and that that's within an afternoon so um <laughs> you know it reads more like a game of arkham horror than it would you know sort of lovecraft mm. but um yeah lynn i think lynn carter was the most for, for the intimate issue the witch stuff has been almost all historical 
Um, I mean, in part because witches are sort of passe, and in part because they've been treated pretty badly in many bits of fiction, unfortunately. Um, not that I, you know, good, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good witch story I actually read. Usually it's just a shorthand for I'm, they're evil or they have a witch ancestor, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the historical material I found very ins- inspirational. For example, um, you know, I was, I've been doing a research for a project about um, Lovecraft Country Graveyards, a sort of monograph focus, not an actual Chaosium monograph, but a future a project for us. And, um, you know, in doing that, I visited, you know, I came across one group of stone carvers who produced gravestones in the area around what was um, Lovecraft's inspiration for Dunwich. Um, and I found, I'm just sending you a link now to the art, the, the journal article I found about them. It's just such a strange gravestone style that I had to immediately incorporate it into Dunwich because it's just bizarre and, and it spoke, to, it, it sort of spoke to me in that. Um, trying to think of others. I mean, you know, there uh, on the gravestone front, there was a carver in Boston in the late seventh, sixteenth century who kept putting mermaids on all the tombstones. Huh. I mean, if you can't work with that, <laughs> yes, <laughs> oh, that's Lovecraft. just perfect. <laughs> um, so, you know, this, 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 this. I think of the other, you know, historical elements that are really, you know, discovering that every New England, every Massachusetts town has to have little stone markers set up in a circle around it, showing the boundaries of the town, or. Um, <laughs> Reading about the um, state school system where they disposed of, you know, children with, met, with learning disabilities um, in the, the 19th and 20th centuries, the sort of real world horror that existed, you know, that, that could be abused by the mythos or by people, you know, some darker connection, you know, finding a, a reference in the Salem witch trials to a, a creature that had a, a face, a body like a monkey, but a face like a man and feet like a crow. You know, which immediately screamed out to me, you know, well, that's a rat thing. Um, yeah. So that sort of thing has made it made it very much worthwhile. And so the, I, I won't send you the link to that since I want to at least make, have some excitement in the next issue. <laughs> um, you know, and it's honestly it's just what other people have done with some of the same topics. You know, we've got for the witch issue, we have an article about um, blue marks or the witch's tit sort of teat sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, familiars are supposed to have, you know, consume from and Graham. Price wrote an article talking about the medical background, what those might have actually been, um, as well as this, you know, sort of how that might function in a, in a game. Or, you know, Chris Huth wrote a really disturbing article about, well, you know, how one might actually produce a rat thing, um, <laughs> and some suggestions for alternate creatures. Let's just say uh, there are, ver- if you if you're familiar with a teratoma, um, you might have some idea how a rat thing might be born, and how Walter Gilman may have actually died. I, I I feel vaguely ashamed to say that that doesn't mean anything to me. What, what, no, me neither. Ah. A, a teratoma is a type of tumor that is where tissue from a different part of the body grows in a part of the body where it ought not to. So no, it's when you might find a teeth? cluster of hair and teeth inside a tumor. Uh, oh, wow. Yes. It is. I think the Latin is or the Greek is for like terrible growth. <laughs> Monster, <laughs> yes. so no, mon- monstrous, monstrous growth. growth yes. Mm. Yes. They are, yeah. That's it's. You know, sometimes they're sometimes theorized to be twins that were were absorbed into the other twin um, before birth. So, oh, like Stephen King used in the Dark Half. Yes. Yes. I was just thinking the uh, the blinking eye in the brain. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I mean, the, you know, people have taken the same sort of either historical or bio, bio you know, or uh, same setting information and really done some fascinating things with it. So. 
it's exciting to see what other people – as much as I love my own writing, it's more exciting to see what other people come up with. And it's fun giving them a, a place to do so, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I think the, the thing I, – I, I would just encourage people to do research. I mean, I, I don't think it's necessary to do graduate-level research to write up a scenario. But if you're going to write a scenario in a different setting, know the setting enough to make it – you know, sell it to the players, not so much to sell it to a, a historian or an academic. You know, mm-hmm. make – Find the reason why it's compelling to you and share that with someone else. Um, you know, I love, I think Lovecraft Country is a great setting just for some ease of gaming and just because, you know, it inspired Lovecraft. You know, you've got all sorts of elements of, of history that can easily be used to spur your own imagination, not to, not to supplement or not to supplant it, but to supplement it and get your own ideas and notions going to build, you know, find what terrifies you. Um, and the fun thing is, of course, what you stumble across accidentally in your research. I was on a completely different topic, and I found this, you know, lengthy, I posted to my blog, this whole description of a haunting, a, a spectral light that was seen by the side of the road in this Connecticut town, and I found this in a rather dry town history, it was just sort of thrown in, <laughs> you know, and it's it's not a story I've ever seen anywhere else, I did some research, you know, it's not a haunting that's ever been picked up by modern sort of junk ghost authors, so. Oh yeah, it's always lovely when you stumble across things like that. Yes, it's a, it's a great moment where you're like, aha, you know, when you see that there was a, a, an eclipse in New York in 1925, <laughs> like, oh, well, that's obviously has to be included. Or if, there, you know, if there's rioting going on in Shanghai or, you know, if the if the you discover the Great Sphinx is being excavated in 1924 and was completely covered by sand until that year, this, you can work with that. I think the other okay. fun article I found was, a, was an entomological discussion of all of the names of English goblins. So if I ever need to, it was like 150 names of every possible weird imp that was ever spotted by some folklorist in a record, some county record. I, 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 I Nigel Farage on the list? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> was Nigel Farage on the list? I'm not uh, sure you're no. up with our, our politics here, but never mind. <laughs> Just no, I, I know who he is. No, he was... He is, uh, his, his name is too too ancient to be included on a gob- list of goblins from whatever. <laughs> they, they had to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he might be he might be Dick a Tuesday. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making that name up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I believe I've read the same list, and yeah, there are some absolute gems on there. Yes. Shall we wrap things up there? Um... At what point do we sing? <laughs> Preferably never. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Brett. That's been yeah, quite quite insightful, I think, chaps. Definitely, yeah. Yes, I concur. I hope so. Yeah, in- interesting to learn a lot of the a lot of the anecdotes that you come across when performing research. And you know, I've run run across quite a few of them myself. That suddenly those those moments that stand out and that you think, yeah, this this definitely has to go in a scenario somewhere. I've still not been able to incorporate the article I found on cows drunk on fermented apples yet, but someday. <laughs> oh, that, that deserves a whole scenario to itself. That's I think funny. the headline was, five cows dead, three drunk. <laughs> wow. Farming oh, in that... Dunwich, I'm sure we can get it in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. No, thank, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Talk to you yeah. again soon. Yes. Thank you very much, Brett. Thanks, Brett. Bye. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. 
The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. And we have new Patreon backers to thank. Hey! Yeah, a big thanks to Brett Kramer for his donation. Yes, thank you, Brett. Indeed, thank you very much, Brett. And two new backers that we need to sing to. Oh, God. Yes. So if you're new to the show uh, and you're backing us through Patreon... Get some earplugs. If you back at us at the high enough level, you get us to sing to you. There's a reason why we call this backer level permanent insanity. It's not referring to the amount of money you give and the fact that you have to be permanently insane to do so. It's because of what we inflict on you when you give that amount of money. <laughs> so we got a thanks coming up to Ollie Palmer and Adam Alexander. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A reminder for our Patreon backers um, that we do have a subscription-only opt-in mailing list whereby we give our backers an opportunity to get involved in any playtesting that we have of upcoming scenarios. So if any of you are out there that have backed Patreon and haven't selected that option yet, then remember, it's out there. We have scenarios coming up. Yeah, just send us a message and we'll include you when we're looking to run a game on Skype or Google Hangouts. Yeah, I think Matt's got some Call of Cthulhu playtesting coming up. I've got some World War Cthulhu and Lamentations of the Flame Princess stuff I need to test. So And mm -hmm. Paul's got bugger all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you like the good friends of Jackson Elias and you subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, we'd be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes. Just let other people know what you think. Oh, that was a much bigger topic than I thought it was going to be. It's almost like when you research something, you don't realise quite how far in you're going to go. Oh, fuck, it's a metaphor. <laughs> Is it? So you know it's not a simile? That just sounds what, scary what now. Is it a synecdoche? No, it's, it's not really one of those. That's in New York, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it kind of made me think that maybe I need to do more research and made me think maybe you need to do less, Matt. <laughs> no! <laughs> no, no, you do fine. Um, it made me realise, it, it kind of reinforced in my mind that I need to do the research up front and not kind of wait and do it at the end. Um, but, you know. Well, I, th I think it's a bit of both. I think, you know, but the, the ideal model is a research sandwich. It's the kind of light research up front, then the detailed research to fill in the gaps afterwards. So there you are, listener. We'll leave you with the research sandwich. One of your yum, five yum. a day. <laughs> that about wraps it up for tonight. It's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me.
<laughs> my tongue is as limber as it's ever been. <laughs>